Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity, entitled Mechanisms of Pressure Relief in Glaucoma, Pharmacologic and Surgical Advances, is jointly provided by Postgraduate Institute for Medicine and Health Matters CME. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from Airy Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Alcon Pharmaceuticals Limited, and Bosch and Loam Incorporated. The following segment was recorded at a live CME symposium and shortened for this broadcast. To listen to the program in its entirety and to review the faculty information and conflict of interest disclosure statement, please visit reachmd.com slash glaucoma advances. Dr. David Friedman delivered the first presentation on demographics and POAG. Time to consider alternative care models. Here's your speaker, Dr. Friedman. We have a really rapid change in the patient population that we're going to be treating as people become older and live longer. We really will not have enough ophthalmologists as time goes on. We're spending a lot just to take care of our patients, and a lot of that process, if you look, is really ineffective. We do have greater and better technology. We can monitor people with devices better than we used to, and that opens up a window for a new paradigm of care. We now have a lot of ways to test patients with electronic devices. You could have a chart, you can have an iPad or a telephone to measure visual acuity. We can measure pressure with a non-contact device that doesn't require anesthesia or with puff or with the traditional methods. We have ways to take photos with easy portable handheld devices, mounted devices. You can even use an iPhone if you want or use other uh, low-cost digital cameras. And then OCT is becoming more and more portable. There are even devices that self-actuate so that you can just put the patient in the chair. So here we have a panoply of instruments. We can use them in a kiosk in the middle of the mall, or we could set these up in many locations. Technicians could collect the data for us. We'd know the pressure. We'd know the fundus. We'd know whether the fields were stable or not, whether the OCT was stable or not, and we wouldn't have to even touch the patient. And then we could spend a lot more time counseling and advising our patients, which is really probably one of the most important things we don't do well enough. And so we could do a much better job if we centralize some of the testing. Technology can greatly help us. And now we have very nice software on many of the different companies' devices. As these technologies get better and better, as machine learning comes out, we could apply that in a centralized location far more easily than in the current dispersed technology environment that we have. One of the nice things that we can do as well is we can use structure and function together and that can greatly assist us in diagnosing. There's very good evidence that this is doable in developed countries. The UK has greatly eliminated most severe diabetic retinopathy through photo screening remotely done by technicians just as we could be doing for glaucoma care for much of the care we do. So what I'm arguing here is we could have better integration of data, we could have more resources allocated to interpreting, to machine learning, to determining who really is getting worse, and a physician with better data and more time to interact with those who need the time. We often make the determination of worsening over a very short period of time, staring at some printouts instead of using our facilities as best we can. And we could rapidly upgrade to better and newer technologies as they become available for our patients. 
So what we would do is test at ancillary locations for most patients, and then you would have those who really had an issue come in for a much longer discussion about the options for treatment and care. And that would seem to me a far better approach than what we're doing today. In the office of tomorrow, the data would be collected remotely most of the time. A physician would have many screens that show all the data, kind of Captain Kirk looking over the Starship Enterprise. And then ancillary staff would relay the findings to the patient, and we would then bring in those who needed longer visits to discuss surgery or changes in care. Populations, as I say, are aging and growing. Our resources today are finite. Physician supply is not growing. Technology is improving. All that we need to do is start thinking a little more clearly about the logistics of delivering better health care. In the second symposium presentation, Dr. W. Daniel Stammer spoke on recent discoveries on the pathophysiology of glaucoma, novel treatments. Now, here is your speaker, Dr. Stammer. So it's hard to believe it's been 21 years since latanoprost hit the market. It was approved by the FDA, and we don't have another glaucoma drug yet. Well, tonight I'm going to tell you about a couple drugs, one that's recently been approved and another one that's awaiting approval by the FDA. Along the way, over those 20 years since latanoprost has been approved, we've learned a lot about the outflow system of the eye, and it's really fed the development of these two drugs that have made it through phase three trials. So just to review that interocular pressure is a function of a variety of parameters. The first is the rate of flow inside into the eye, the aqueous humor into the eye. And then it's removal by the uveoscleral outflow pathway and the conventional outflow pathway. And that's against the back pressure of the episcleral venous pressure. So if you have a very robust outflow, small changes in inflow aren't going to matter too much. And so your diurnal fluctuations in that patient aren't going to be as big of a deal. But if you have a patient that has a compromised conventional outflow pathway, like that happens in ocular hypertension, then all of a sudden changes in flow, like that happens over the course of the day, is going to have a dramatic impact on the fluctuations that that eye sees. And all the, the clinical trials so far have shown that pressure is important. And lowering pressure, whether you have ocular hypertension or normal tension glaucoma, you're going to do better. Matter of fact, the lower you get the pressure, the better the outcome. Of course, the problem is, is getting that pressure down low enough without surgery. Medically, that's very challenging, and I'll show you some data from some of these recent trials that show that it may be possible with some of the newer drugs. So how do we lower pressure? We can inhibit the fluid flow into the eye, and that's been around for quite some time, including drugs like beta-adrenergic blockers, carbonic anhydrase inhibitors, alpha-2-adrenergic receptor agonists. So you can increase the uveoscleral flow, the secondary flow pathway in the eye by prostaglandins. And the last, of course, is increasing conventional outflow. And there's none currently available in the U.S., although hopefully soon. So why do we need a, an outflow drug? Well, the majority of the flow goes through the conventional outflow pathway. So the uveoscleral pathway is the minor route, although that's what we're targeting in terms of outflow currently. We want to avoid uh, interventional treatments like surgery and laser if we can. And theoretically, they should be additive to the current drug. So we should get more bang for the buck if you have a, a conventional drug. But getting back to the big thing Morton Grant taught us is that the conventional track is the disease pathway. So targeting the disease pathway makes a lot of sense. You're going to get better perfusion of these tissues and the cells. You have a possibility of stimulating. There's an endogenous stem cell population in the outflow track to stimulate those cells to divide. And again, getting back to this point, if you have higher facility, you're going to dampen those fluctuations in the eye. 
the two classes of drugs that have made it through phase three trials are the rokinase inhibitors and the nitric oxide. And in the U.S., we have two drugs. We have natarsidil, which is a rokinase inhibitor that's awaiting approval, and latanoprostine benone, which was just approved by the FDA not too long ago and will soon be in patients. What I'm going to do is first going to talk about the mechanism of action of these drugs and then talk about just some highlights of clinical trials. So latanoprostine benone, it's a combo drug. It's got latanoprost, and then it has an ester linkage, and then it has a nitric oxide donor. The prostaglandin goes off to increase uveoscleral outflow, and then the nitric oxide part goes to impact conventional outflow. And it turns out that there's an endogenous system in the conventional outflow tract. So it turns out SLEMS canal cells make nitric oxide, and that affects the contractility status of the TM. The net result is you relax the TM, you get more fluid through the tissue, and you lower pressure. So rokinase inhibitors, how do they work? So they inhibit rokinase. Well, what that does, it shifts the curve so that now this phosphatase in the cell is dephosphorylating myosin light chain, which inhibits contraction or relaxes the cell. And in studies with perfused uh, human eyes looking at how it's working, it increases conventional outflow directly. And it does so very fast, suggesting that it is a contractility issue. It can relax the cell very quickly within 30 minutes, and it can get up to 60% increase in outflow by three hours. Now, looking at latanoprostine benone, the phase three Apollo study, and the lunar study was the same design and saw very similar results. The patient's pressure were dramatically lower compared to Timolol. And in another study, the Voyager phase three trial, where it was an increasing dosing study of the latanoprostine benone, and it was up against the latanoprost to see the nitric oxide component of this, or the additivity. And with increasing concentrations of the drug, you saw a decrease in the IOP. Well, it turns out that latanoprost has its maximal effect at 0.005%, so getting more of the latanoprost doesn't matter, but getting more of the NO actually gave you more benefit. And in this case, it was about a millimeter and a half of benefit with the, with the drug. When looking at the 12-month safety study, the efficacy was shown to persist, so lower tension glaucoma it was efficacious. And the similar things that you would find was just latanoprost by itself, like obviously conjunctival hyperemia, growth of eyelashes, iris pigmentation, those sorts of things were, were happening in this patient population. So how do we think this actually works? So most of us, hopefully right now, we have a healthy TM. But as we age and as we're exposed to a variety of environmental conditions and maybe some genetics, the TM will fibrose and stiffen and contract as a result. You're going to decrease the perfusion of the aqueous humor through that tissue, less nutrients, antioxidants, you get cellular stress, and you get this sort of vicious cycle that starts building up. And that results in elevated IOP and vision loss eventually in folks. So what happens if you give them a drug that decreases this contractility? Well, you're going to reduce this fibrosis or this contraction state. You're increasing the perfusion, and you're stopping the cycle. You're getting more nutrients, antioxidants. You have less cellular stress. And hopefully it does uh, lower IOP, and, and we'll, we'll see if it preserves vision. So just to summarize the take-homes, conventional outflow dysfunction is responsible for ocular hypertension. And if you effectively lower IOP, you can preserve vision. There's no medication currently available that primarily targets the conventional outflow pathway, but it will soon be available, hopefully. In the third symposium presentation, Dr. Stephen Getty spoke on mechanisms of pressure relief in glaucoma, advances for refractory POAG, or non-adherence. And now, here's your speaker, 
Dr. Getty. Surgery has historically been reserved for patients who demonstrate progressive glaucoma despite maximum tolerated medical therapy and appropriate laser treatment or have pressure elevation to a level where progression is deemed likely to occur. Well, this is a really exciting time for glaucoma, and the reason is is that the options for the surgical management of glaucoma have expanded exponentially in recent years. Traditionally, glaucoma surgeries involved trabeculectomy and aqueous shunts. Trabeculectomy was popularized by Cairns in the late 1960s, and as you know, this involves the creation of a partial thickness scleral flap, and a hole is made into the anterior chamber underneath that scleral flap, and then the scleral flap is sutured to the scleral bed with multiple interrupted sutures. And the tension and the number of those flap sutures are really what controls the percolation of aqueous humor at the surgical site. And if the operation works well, it produces a collection of aqueous in the subconjunctival space and, and we see a filtering bleb. We can actually cut those sutures with laser suture lysis postoperatively, and that means the trabeculectomy is a titratable procedure. We can actually staircase down the pressure with suture lysis. And that titratability is, char- is a characteristic only of trabeculectomy. There's no other glaucoma procedure that we're going to discuss today that offers some titratability, and I think that is an underappreciated asset of this procedure. Antifibrotic agents like mitomycin C and 5-FU are routinely used as adjuncts to trabeculectomy and have been shown to improve the success rate of the operation, but unfortunately they've also been shown to increase the risk of complications, hypotony, hypotony-related complications, and also blood-related complications including leaks, infections, and dysesthesia. And I think it's that concern about blood-related complications that has prompted many surgeons to consider alternative surgical approaches. I think tube shunt surgery has been one of the major alternatives used for trabeculectomy, and we're seeing some interesting trends in glaucoma surgery. Actually, the number of trabeculectomies performed in the U.S. between 1994 and 2012 has been gradually decreasing. It's likely related to advances in medical therapy as well as the introduction of selective laser trabeculoplasty. But what I find interesting is during the same time frame, there's been a steady increase in the number of tube shunts placed in the U.S. Aqueous shunts all share a common design. They consist of a tube that is connected to an end plate. The tube is generally inserted in the anterior chamber. It shunts aqueous humor to an end plate that is located in the equatorial region of the globe. A capsule forms around the end plate, and when aqueous flow occurs through these devices, uh, aqueous pools in the potential space between the end plate and the surrounding capsule. It then passes through the capsule through the process of passive diffusion and, and is absorbed, and this is a mechanism of pressure reduction. Aqueous shunts differ in their design depending on whether they do or do not include a valve-like mechanism that restricts flow through the device if the pressure becomes too low. The Ahmed is the valved aqueous shunt in popular use, and the Bearvelt Maltino are examples of non-valved aqueous shunts. Traditionally, these devices have been reserved for eyes at high risk of failure with trabeculectomy, although I think the indications for their use have been gradually expanding. There have been several recent multicenter randomized clinical trials that have investigated aqueous shunts, and two of them include the ABC, or Ahmed Bearvelt Comparison Study, and the AVB, or Ahmed versus Bearvelt. Uh, study. These two studies recently pooled their data, and here are the pub- recently published results. The uh, Bearvelt implant uh, had a higher uh, success rate 
and provided greater degrees of pressure reduction compared to the Ahmed implant. Now the pool data has not looked at complication rates, but I will indicate that each of these studies separately have reported that the Ahmed implant seems to have a more favorable safety profile compared to the Beervelt implant. The TVT study is another multi-center randomized clinical trial comparing tube shunt surgery and trabeculectomy surgery in eyes that have had previous ocular surgery, in particular either cataract extraction or failed filtering surgery. Those patients were randomized to receive a 350 Beervelt or trabeculectomy with mitomycin C and found that patients that underwent tube shunt surgery had a higher success rate or a lower rate of failure compared to trabeculectomy. A more recent study, similar design, called the primary tube versus trabeculectomy study, is taking patients without previous incisional ocular surgery and randomizing them also to a Beervelt implant or trabeculectomy with mitomycin C at a lower dosage of mitomycin C. One-year results from this study showed that the accumulative probability of failure was higher with tube shunts surgery than trabeculectomy surgery, so an opposite result of the TVT study, and it I think shows us that whether a patient has had prior ocular surgery or not may influence the choice of the best surgery in the line of traditional glaucoma surgery. The expressed implants a non-valve stainless steel tube negates the need for a sclerostomy or iridectomy. When this device was initially introduced, it was associated with a very high rate of hypotony and extrusion, but it was quickly realized that this should be implanted under a scleral flap and then the complication rate became much more acceptable. Similar long-term safety and efficacy has been demonstrated with the express implant in trabeculectomy. A randomized prospective study comparing the express to standard trabeculectomy. After two years of follow-up, similar success rates and similar pressure reduction were seen with both treatments. Although, interestingly, there was earlier return of visual acuity in the express group, although after two years there was no significant difference in visual outcomes. Non-penetrating glaucoma surgery involves excision of corneal scleral tissue under a scleral flap and leaves a thin window of trabecular meshwork and decimase membrane to provide resistance to aqueous outflow. The advantage of these procedures is that they reduce the risk of hypotony, although they are technically more difficult. And deep sclerectomy, viscocanalostomy, and canaloplasty are all examples of non-penetrating glaucoma surgery. In a small, prospective, randomized trial, Comparing trabeculectomy and non-penetrating deep sclerectomy, trabeculectomy had a higher success rate and lower levels of intraocular pressure. Endocyclophotocoagulation involves treatment of ciliary processes under direct visualization with an endoscopic camera and laser. This is a procedure frequently combined with phacal emulsification and provides moderate pressure reduction. And, and CME is a problem with this procedure and, in fact, the most common cause of vision loss. Minimally invasive glaucoma surgery is a term that was coined by Ike Ahmed and refers to a newer group of procedures that share some common characteristics. They're done by an ab-internal approach. They involve minimal trauma to tissue. They're modestly effective in providing pressure reduction. They have an excellent safety profile and a rapid recovery of vision postoperatively. These procedures are commonly done in conjunction with phacal emulsification, and they are certainly growing in popularity. Abinternal trabeculectomy or trabectome involves electrocautery removal of a strip of trabecular meshwork in Schlem's canal. A recent meta-analysis involving 14 papers and over 5,000 patients 
indicated that the mean reduction in pressure was 31% and the success rate of two years was 66%. Interesting, prior studies have shown that laser trabeculoplasty and prior trabeculectomy does not influence the results of trabectome. Here's a retrospective comparative study of trabeculectomy and trabectome as a primary standalone procedure, and uh, the probability of success was much higher with trabeculectomy compared to trabectome, and that's consistent with, I think, most of us, our clinical impression. Trabecular microbypass stent or eye stent is a snorkel-shaped device made of heparin-coated titanium that's inserted in Schlem's canal. It's been FDA-approved for use with cataract extraction in patients with mild to moderate glaucoma. Randomized clinical trials have shown that it's more effective in reducing intraocular pressure and the need for medical therapy than FACO alone. And there's growing evidence that suggests that multiple eye stents can provide greater pressure reduction than a single stent. Here are results from the pivotal trial that was used to gain FDA approval of the eye stent. The primary outcome measure in this study was an unmedicated pressure less than 21, and a secondary outcome measure was an unmedicated reduction in pressure by at least 20% below baseline. And both of those outcomes favored the FACO eye stent group over FACO alone. SciPass is a flexible 6.35 millimeter fenestrated microstent with an internal lumen of 300 microns. This is inserted into the suprachoroidal space using a guide wire, and it shunts aqueous humor from the anterochamber to the suprachoroidal space using a pressure gradient. Here are the two-year results of the COMPASS trial, a multicenter clinical trial comparing FACO plus SIPASS to FACO alone. The proportion of patients that achieved at least a 20% reduction in pressure was higher in the group, in the FACO side pass group than FACO alone. And also the mean intraocular pressure unmedicated was lower in the FACO side pass group than the FACO alone group. The Zen gel stent is a six millimeter tubular collagen implant implanted translimbally. This device is inserted using a 27 gauge needle inserter by an ab internal approach, and it drains aqueous humor into the subconjunctival space, as does trabeculectomy. There's limited clinical data with this device, but there appears to be quite a high rate of needling that's required to keep it functioning, somewhere between 32 to 47%. This is a recent retrospective study comparing the Zen gel stent trabeculectomy, both with the adjunctive use of mitomycin C as a primary standalone procedure. And using various definitions of success and failure, there was no significant difference between trabeculectomy and the Zen gel stent. Gonioscopy-assisted transluminal trabeculotomy, GAT, involves a microcatheter or suture inserted by an ab internal approach to perform a 360 trabeculotomy. And hyphema is the most common complication of this procedure. The Kahook dual blade is a single-use ophthalmic blade that's used to remove trabecular meshwork. The blade has a pointed tip that allows it to pierce the trabecular meshwork, a ramp that elevates and stretches the TM, and the dual blade excises a strip of trabecular meshwork. The foot plate is designed to prevent collateral damage to tissue. And the TRAP360 involves a cannula that's used to incise the trabecular meshwork and introduce a flexible trabectome over 180 degrees. The filament is then retracted and the device rotated and the procedure can be performed in the opposite direction to create a 360 goniotomy. There are a variety of procedures that are in various stages of FDA approval right now. The in-focus microchent is a translimbal implant inserted by an ab-external approach. 
the hydrus, microstent, and iStent injector to Schlem's canal implants in FDA trials. And the gold micro shunt is a type of supracoroidal shunt that's actually available in Europe but not in the United States, and, and iStent Supra is currently in, under investigation. So in summary, the surgical options for managing glaucoma are rapidly expanding. Traditional glaucoma, namely tubes and trabs, really are very effective in providing pressure reduction. But surgical complications are common, albeit most of them are transient and self-limited. And MIGs are a newer group of procedures that offer an improved safety profile, but unfortunately are not as effective in lowering intraocular pressure. In the concluding presentation in the symposium, Dr. Friedman spoke on new approaches in the pipeline to drug delivery for glaucoma. Here's your speaker, Dr. Friedman. I'm going to talk now about things that are in the pipeline, try and help people have a sense of what the future may bring. There is one company that's developed a drug delivery system through a scleral ring. It's able to incorporate drugs into a polymer. They had almost no safety concerns, and the vast majority preferred it to regular drops, and doctors also thought it was easy to use. So this is a validated platform. It can deliver drug to patients, and the drug can last for up to six months in this vehicle. And a patient can, by just observing, see whether or not the ring is in place. There's a company developing drugs that can be delivered into the suprachoroidal space. It uses a short, sharp needle, and as it pops into the suprachoroidal space, you feel the easing, and then you can deliver drug, and they've shown that this drug can be made to migrate around the choroidal space and be delivered into the macular region and elsewhere. There's ongoing research with this drug. Obviously, this is right next to the retina, so the focus has been on macular edema, neovascular uh, macular degeneration, and they've completed some phase one, two studies, and they're starting phase two, three studies on macular edema, Injections have to be repeatedly given every 12 weeks, which is a little bit off of our normal glaucoma time frame, and they're thinking about looking into glaucoma medicines to deliver. It would likely eliminate almost all side effects. There would be very low drug requirement because you'd be putting the drug right where you want it to be, particularly if it's a neuroprotective agent. But what would be the potential long-term harm to the retina or choroid of repeated injections is unknown, and that's in a very important area because of the blood flow. And dosing frequency, if it's too common, may exceed examination frequency, which would mean you'd have to add exams, and that's a, that's a logistical difficulty. There are intracameral injections. They can print the particles on this carbon kind of template, and the particles can be made very small, and then they can be put in to the anterior chamber. This is an early development, but they show very large drops from baseline over very long periods of time. So this is a 30% change over six months. The current product is using Travapros. They're in stage two evaluation, and this long duration of action could be interesting. There are companies developing bioerodible subconjunctival implants. These are in a membrane, and then the drug core slowly will release it. You could either imagine these being sutured to the sclera, or these could be placed under the conjunctiva if they stay in place properly. There's a core filled with drug that can be released gradually over time, and they're quite small. They have ongoing phase one and two studies. They're looking at retinal products that have had a duration of as long as two to three years. So that's really quite impressive. And if we could know that these things worked for such a long period of time, that could really be a game changer. And then there are bioerodible tear ducts. This, this approach has been tried for a very long time. And there were many issues with these 
plugs falling out. And that is a real problem, especially if you're unaware of the fact that they fell out. But now there appear to be devices that really stay snugly in there, but they're so snugly in there that you really can't remove them. And so these are very small. They can be loaded with drug, and they can deliver drug for an extended period of time, so you could actually see where it's sitting. There is a phase three trial completed for dexamethasone for after cataract surgery, and actually that might be a very nice use of such a drug. You can take the patient out of the drop taking behavior after surgery. They've started a phase one trial with Timolol versus Travaprost, and they found that they were able to lower pressure with one administration for three months, minimal side effects. It's easy to place. It's likely to be acceptable to patients. It's hard to remove and really probably almost be impossible to remove these once they're in place. And so if there's any drug reaction, if there are side effects, if there's excessive tearing of the patient, all of those would become a problem once they're in place. And it may be if it's every three months that that's just not long enough because we're not going to want to see our patients every three months. Although you could always adapt your clinic to have a drug placement day or something. And then there's these nanoparticles. These can be uh, created to have drug in them and to deliver drug over an extended period of time. And these can be placed in subconjunctival space and can be delivered. So this could be another way to give long-term drug to patients and perhaps glaucoma agents. In summary, uh, our medical therapy is clearly an evolution. We've just heard how surgery is an evolution, but I also think most of us would rather not operate if we don't have to, and if we could have longer delivery of medicines that were more effective for patients, that would be fantastic. There's going to be all kinds of adaptations that we as clinicians are going to have to make to these new regimens. If it involves an injection, a placement, or whatever, we're going to have to figure out how to incorporate that into the practice. This has been CME on ReachMD. This activity was jointly provided by Postgraduate Institute for Medicine and Health Matters CME. To receive your free CME credit, download this activity, or listen to the program in its entirety, go to reachmd.com slash glaucoma advances. ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.